Welcome to episode 75 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about the writing process, how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. And as Tarek says, this is our Diamond Jubilee (laughs) (laughs) episode. 75 episodes. Yeah, of, of some really great guests we've had on frankly i'm surprised they came on to speak to us <laughs> let's be <laughs> I honest they, I, don't, I don't think they knew what they were getting involved in but um yeah so uh, do check out the back catalogue if this is the first time you've stumbled across us because there's bound to be people you want to listen to but if you have tuned in for this episode it's because you know we've got another great guest this week we always have a great guest and this week is no exception marco we are chatting with nina allen this week, who uh, has an extremely wide uh, catalogue of work. It's, mm-hmm. She's done loads of stuff. She's so many collections of short stories. She's done novellas. She's done a whole bunch of novels. And her newest novel is um, the, the Good Neighbours, which is out uh, June 10th at time of recording. So just next week, very exciting news. It was out June 10th, even not at time of recording, because dates work like that. Well, that's a good point. No matter when, yeah, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Dates tend to be a date and stick there. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's a really good chat with Nina. And as you say, she's she's written so much stuff. Um, I mean, it's hard to categorise what she writes. She sort of broke in via sort of science fiction, horror type magazines and stories that way. And we talked to her about that. But... You know, we get into that whole chat of what is science fiction and stuff. You know, there's this the sort of genre snobbery that you can get, but there is such a wide thing of what sci-fi is. You know, she makes the point that 1984 is is Mm -hmm. a science fiction story, but not many people would probably think of it as a science fiction story. No, absolutely, and 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 um, things like The Handmaid's Tale, yeah, um, which arguably has to be a science fiction story, but but. I think even Margaret Atwood herself says she doesn't write sci-fi. It's a very weird kind of disconnect between yeah between the genre and I, I, I think maybe it's just kind of snobbery thing. And it's an interesting yeah topic it, to explore. It is yeah, and you know it, it's it's it doesn't really matter what category you put it in, but I think it can. It's unfortunate that these sort of labels can sometimes turn people off stories that they might actually yeah. otherwise enjoy. If, Absolutely, if, you know. Yeah. So at the end of the day, if it's a well-written story. It doesn't matter if it's set in space or the future or whatever. It's it's, it's irrelevant. And yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, well, we we chat to her about all of that and much more, including her uh, quite unique process to redrafting. I think it's fair <laughs> to say, long um, process. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, we'll we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our page one writer's notebook, um, and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about our future plans. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? 
What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Um, did you always want to be a writer? Is that is that what you always wanted to do? I I don't know about wanting to be a writer. I I have to say I kind of was a writer from a really young age in that it's something I've always done, like from almost as soon as I learned to read, I found myself sort of seized with a compulsion to set things down on paper. Mm-hmm. And even when I was at the stage of sort of like five, six years old, drawing pictures in little scrapbooks and stuff i would i would write stories to go with them or rather i'd write stories uh, which i would then illustrate mm-hmm. and um the the, the the first the first inkling i had that this was anything special because it's, this just came naturally to me it was just something i did mm-hmm. it was almost as if i was wanting to fix my experiences of the world so I I wouldn't forget them. It was something that sort of really felt important to me. Mm-hmm. And the first inkling I had that this was in any way unusual happened to me at primary school. As, as I say, I was like six. I know I was because it, it happened in a certain school before we moved to another school where I, you know, it, I, I know exactly when it happened. I, uh, our headmaster gave a sort of an address in assembly. He'd read a story, that kind of thing, and, uh, and then make make little questions about it or whatever. We were all mm-hmm. young kids. And he read a story one day, and I didn't like the ending. I didn't like the way it ended. So when we got back into class, I sort of wrote my own ending to this story. And my teacher sort of like sent me along to the headmaster's study and... <laughs> 
where I was given a gold star. And I was like really bemused. I rem still remember being really bemused because it was like, well, what's so weird about that? Yeah. I was just, yeah. It's just something I did. And um, something I continued doing and it sort of morphed and changed its form, the, the writing I did and my levels of interest in it sort of has been on a rather um it's, it's, it's ra a, a rather sort of various and divergent path but it is something i have always done mm -hmm. or rather something i can't imagine not doing yeah. mm -hmm. and you, you you did i mean you've written a, a lot of stuff and we'll, we'll get into that um and short stories were kind of where you seem to have got your start and 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 you've done a lot of them and and why did you choose to, to start with those kind of rather than going for a novel was it simply a case of you know that was kind of where I think a lot more well, for me anyway and I'm sure a lot of writers kind of start with a short story because it's it's kind of easier isn't it? you can kind of write a complete story quite short and, and, and was that the reason that you went down that path first no I mean it's it's chance it's it's a weird one um I actually when I was first write I wrote short stories as a young teenager and they were kind of horror SF stories mm -hmm. because again it wasn't something that wasn't something I consciously chose I was just like really into weird fiction I liked HG Wells I you know the time machine was a really early influence I absolutely loved it I was terrified of Morlocks <laughs> still am uh, <laughs> uh, I loved Doctor Who from the age of six I was really into Doctor Who I, I was utterly convinced this program was made specifically for me I could switch on every Saturday evening and there'd be a new monster and I was totally into it I loved John Wyndham, um, mm. the um, Day of the Triffids. I was yeah. obsessed mm. with that. I was obsessed with um, John Christopher's Tripods trilogy long before it was known as the Tripods trilogy. Um, I, I was reading it long before the BBC series made it popular. Mm. I loved all these things. And so I was kind of, again, making up my own versions of them. And that went on until I started formally studying for my O-levels, uh, what you probably know as GCSEs. Mm. <laughs> <Thus revealing laughs> um, and at which point I was sort of subconsciously steered away from writing fiction. It was, it was subtly made known that this wasn't what we were doing now. Up to that point, we were encouraged in class to write stories. Then suddenly it was we were writing about other people's stories. Mm -hmm. And I loved doing that as well. I, I, I loved and still do love critical work. Uh, and I switched over to it sort of quite naturally, almost really without knowing that a fundamental change had taken place and that I was being steered away from my own creative work into academic work. Mm -hmm. And it took me <laughs> another 20 years to sort of really fully appreciate the change that had happened at that point. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I didn't stop writing 
my own stuff, but it changed. I was writing journals, I was writing poetry. Um, and alongside that, I was writing essays on literature. And my interest in horror fiction and science fiction was kind of subverted. And suddenly I was reading Russian classics as mm. another great love of my life. And all these influences became stirred up into this ridiculous melting pot of differing influences, which I didn't really differentiate between uh, until much later. And I sort of started thinking once again about writing my own fiction. At which point I realised I wasn't that sure how to do that anymore and more whether I could do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I, it had been so long since I wrote a standalone piece of fiction mm -hmm. that it was it was terrifying. And in between, of course, I had read so much fiction of great excellence yeah. and world renown. So how do you suddenly gain the confidence within yourself to say, yeah, actually, I've got something to contribute. Yeah. And it was it was terrifying that at, around that time, um, this would have been in my sort of early mid 30s. I started picking up horror fiction again as a reader. Mm -hmm. And I've been some time away. I didn't know what was going on in the field. I didn't even know really that there was a field of horror fiction or that there was a science fiction community. I didn't have internet at home until <laughs> 2004. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, um, I, I, was, I was sort of in the, in the dark on my own trying to write stories that I didn't know how they connected to what other people were doing, whether anyone will be interested in them. All I did know from reading a lot of how I broke into science fiction, how I broke into horror fiction books, and Stephen King's On Writing was a huge influence at this time, and it's still a great book on how to yeah. write. I yeah. still adore it. But there were a lot of people I was reading. Um, the, the way in was sending short fiction to magazines, which, of course, is a really interesting entry into fiction writing and very, very different to what a lot of people do in mainstream literary fiction, mm -hmm. where you get a pitch together for a novel. It's very rare to break into publication in mainstream literary fiction through short fiction. Mm -hmm. But it's very, very normal in science fiction. Mm. It's been that way for a century. And so it was pure accident. I started doing that. I started sending off stories to fantasy and science fiction, Interzone, The Third Alternative, as it was back then, Black Static, as it is now. Um, these magazines that had this, you know, some of them, some of them a decades long reputation. Mm -hmm. And it, 
that that is that is literally how it happened. It was really really chance hazard, um, and I didn't know any other writers personally at that time at all. I was literally just doing it in my spare time. Um, I you know I at that time I was working a, a full on forty hour week in um, in a day job. Mm-hmm. And and is that still the case for even even nowadays? You think for authors who are wanting to break into the sci-fi horror kind of genre, is it is it going down the going at the short story magazine route? Is that is that still viable, or is is that cheap? It is definitely viable. It's definitely viable. I mean, one of the things that's really a striking point of difference in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror community is that it has this really unique, what I'd say, democracy whereby you can find yourself as a new writer published in a magazine alongside a grandmaster of science fiction who's been publishing for 50 years. Mm, and that yeah. is still a normal thing to happen in a way that I do not think it is normal in Granta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it really isn't. And and um, you, you also get to meet I mean, obviously, 2020 and yeah. increasingly <laughs> looking like 2021, we're not going to conventions, we're not going to literary festivals at the moment. But certainly, I went to my first fantasy con in the early 2000s, and I was immediately meeting writers who I'd read in Best New Horror, who I'd heard on the radio, who I'd read of in books about how to write science mm-hmm. fiction fantasy and horror there they were mm-hmm. in the bar and there was there was no sense of oh my god you can't go up and talk to that person because you could go up and talk to that person and they were used to meeting new writers meeting people who maybe hadn't even published a single story yet i know at the time i went to my first convention i'd published a couple of pieces of short fiction in the what was then the British Fantasy Society, it was called Dark Horizons. It was their writers' magazine, and that was for members only. So very, very few people would have seen anything I'd written. Mm-hmm. And I count that as a really, I count my early lack of connectedness via social media and my lack of knowledge of the scene as a real gift in retrospect, because the one thing I feel now is new and young writers are so exposed very early on. They may not often get the chance to develop a sense of themselves as writers of the kind of writing they want to do, who they want to be, how much they want to engage in social media even. It's suddenly, boom, you're there. Your first story is out there. Uh, you know, my first stories appeared in print magazines that no one could see online or very few people could see, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and it, and it was, it's good looking back on it. I had five years of kind of, um, time to start thinking about who I wanted to be as a writer before I had any exposure at all to the outside world in internet terms. Yeah. Um, I'm, or I, I'm st- I remain very, very grateful for that because it, I think it built in me a kind of resilience and a kind of actually, 
I want to follow my own path mentality. Um, yeah. a, a, a sort of a resistance to being influenced. And that's very valuable. Still is. And interesting that you say like going to the festivals and stuff is a useful thing because it's something that other writers have said to us as well. But um, one thing I, I've always wondered is obviously as, you know, if, if you're going along to these things as, a, you know, either unpublished or maybe published in one thing, one magazine somewhere, writer, it can, as a writer as well, a lot of writers aren't the most extrovert people might be nervous about speaking to people and stuff like that. But, you know, I take it that most people at these festivals are very welcoming and, and wanting to speak to people and fight, meet, meet new writers and things like that. I've certainly found it so on the British scene. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I, I, and, and it's also, it, it's very true. Um, I'm not the most kind of, oh my God, I'm going to go up to that person and just introduce myself. Some people are, mm-hmm. I'm not. But, it gave me a way of seeing other writers, hearing them talk. I mean, I, I, I'm still exactly the same. I go to conventions. I now know a hell of a lot more people. It's a lot easier for me to go now, you know, 15 plus years after my first convention. I do know a lot more people and I, I'm always assured of meeting somebody I know within the first five minutes of arriving. Mm. Um, I, I still get very tired by constant social interaction and so i find i will often escape to panels just so i can hear other people rather than having to talk myself um you you can just take yourself out of circulation for a while that is really universally understood because as as you say yourself a lot of people will be feeling the same way there's also in recent years there's been a, a a way of formally making it easier for new writers to meet other writers via sort of literary beers and cafe clatches mm-hmm. and sort of like smaller groups where the very the whole purpose is to be with another more established writer and to talk to them about their craft to have the kind of conversation that we are having now mm-hmm. in a way that like you're with half a dozen other people who are all wanting to do the same thing I think it's a really lovely innovation. It makes it much easier for people to kind of break through their shyness, which yeah. is a very natural thing for writers. I mean, I I'm, I have huge sympathy with the idea of somebody being scared to go because they're worried that they might not, mm-hmm. but they will find a corner, a place, other people. It's very, even if you just go down to the, dealer's room and look at books there's always other people just doing that it's it's really it is one of the nicer things about starting out in that way there are lots of other people in the same position and you know you're going to meet them it's 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 a good thing and we were we were actually talking about this a bit before we we started recording the podcast but um you know i think it is good for people that are, that are wanting to write to hear these things because if you if you you know if you pick up the a book that says how how do I get an agent or things like that it's a very set thing normally it's like here's yeah. three chapters yeah. here's how you craft a pitch letter a query letter and you send it out and you have to just keep doing that and I think knowing that these are other avenues are available to people is 
is a big thing that isn't actually even in the day of social media. Strangely, it, it's not that well known that you know that's a, that's another potential route in, not necessarily to publish to immediately getting published, but to getting to know the scene and network a bit and things like that. Uh, exactly. I mean, I I didn't have an agent. I'd already published two collections and two novels before I had an agent. Um, it it was always really not that I didn't want one, <laughs> but it it always felt very important to me to find the right agent, and because my work sits in such a strange place at the very cusp of literary and genre fiction. I all, I have always known that I need somebody who understands what I'm doing, who believes in what I'm doing and is prepared to go out there and find a market for what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So getting the right agent was really important to me. And just remember it. I mean, if I, if I had any piece of advice to new writers fight, feeling that they're adrift in this weird labyrinth of conflicting advice, because it is, because mm. the advice is conflicting, because writers are all different. And yeah. so you will have some who are very confident on social media talking about the necessity of being on social media of, as it were, building a platform, those dreaded words, um, and, 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 you know, how, how to network and all these terrifying things, which can be useful if you're that person, but are certainly not necessary. And the only thing you as a writer ever have control over is the standard of the work you are producing. And in the end, it is the only thing that matters. And if you are working at your craft, working on refining who you are and what you want to say and what interests you, and you keep doing it, in the end, you will find your place. Because mm-hmm. it's, a, you know, it's the desire, it's the, the drive to do what you do and the desire to keep doing it that will determine where you go not many how not how many followers you have on twitter Mm -hmm. whatever anyone tells you (laughs) and was once you once you did get the agent um you know what what kind of impact did that have on on your output and on the types of stuff you put now or the or the amount of stuff that that you were you were outputting what it what it's had the impact it's had for me is actually it's interesting it's it's the sense of having someone on my side a spokesperson mm-hmm. somebody who can get my work in front of the editors i am interested in approaching mm-hmm. and this has given me a really massive boost in confidence to push my work to the next level to write even more weird stuff actually <laughs> so rather than rather than kind of commodifying it more or making it more of a product yeah it's actually the opposite i mean the book i'm writing at the moment i'm actually terrified to send in <laughs> because it's so out there 
but I have got the confidence that I, I have people now who are interested in that and that want to help me sell that mm -hmm. and find my audience. And that is a really enormous privilege and very exciting. And it's, it's just made me want to do more. It hasn't made me feel I've arrived. It's mm -hmm. made me feel, thank God, somebody gets what I'm doing. Now I can really try and do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, just touching on, on what you were saying there about, about the types of stories that you tell. I mean, um, obviously, as, as you were telling us, you started out um, writing these short stories in sort of sci-fi fantasy. But um, as, as your career's gone on, you have moved into other fields you will speak about uh, good neighbors uh, a bit later and um, but that's not you know you've moved away from sort of I'm, I'm doing air quotes here a sort of conventional sci-fi into a sort of um, more literary style would that would that be fair to say for me um i don't think i ever did write conventional science fiction mm. and that was part of the problem for some um there there are many people you you could go to any sf convention and find a number of people very quickly who say i don't actually write sf and never have mm -hmm. but what i write is literary fiction that uses speculative elements yeah. mm -hmm. i don't actually mind how people describe my work i think science fiction fantasy and horror all possess the potential to be radical literature. I've always believed that in the way that J.G. Ballard believed that. And he mm -hmm. talked a lot about science fiction as the natural offshoot of modernism. And that's certainly my view of science fiction. And it just so happened that that is the arena into which I fell. And my interests have been evolving, not away from science fiction, but outward from it mm -hmm. um and i see my work obviously my first stories i would look at them now and think you can see elements even then even mm -hmm. in my first stories of what i kind of wanted to do as a writer but wasn't really aware of because i didn't have the means to the technical means to articulate it at mm -hmm. that point you can still see what was there and the further on in my work you go you can see certain elements growing evolving becoming more complicated and i had a very a very interesting experience in the latter part of last year putting together a collection of stories that will be coming out late in this year um spanning you know that it was it was it was the idea was to sort of encompass everything, a bit of everything I've done so far. And I, I wanted it very much to be an arc rather than a hodgepodge of, oh, mm -hmm. here's some stuff I wrote. I wanted the collection to have a shape yeah. and to show that evolution. And I found it fascinating to see how those early stories were kind of folk horror influence before folk horror was a thing. Yeah. I was definitely writing folk horror because I really, t I landscape and sense of place. Mm -hmm. always and there you could say those are the key elements of folk horror mm -hmm. but they were always set absolutely central 
to what I wanted to do. And those took centre stage in those early stories. But the, the further on I have gone, the more we see elements emerging, a sort of a more forensic approach, elements of um, elements of autofiction, even in the latter stories, are there. And there's sort of like this experimental use of the speculative is is more to the fore than the more straightforward stories. So I I I feel I'm still I'm still using the speculative. It still absolutely haunts me and energizes me. But I have gained in confidence to I was talking before about this great melting pot of all the stuff I I've read. It was all the yeah. 20th century literature, everything. I mean sort of I I would cite T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which I read at the age of 14, 15 for the very first time, is an absolutely defining influence on me as a writer in the the um, understanding of what language can do, the understanding of what the shape of words on a page can do. And that was there. And then the sort of the soul searching, liter- literally, in Russian literature, which sort of absolutely possessed me for a decade is still there and I hope becoming more present in my work as as my technical ability increases so does my ability to encompass the kinds of subjects that I've always been interested in. Well, I was going to ask about that so it, it, like it's developed uh, with uh, you've said with your with your technical ability as it's going along I mean is it I'm trying to think how to phrase this question properly, but is it, uh, you know, are are you, do you have, a, have you always had this idea of this is the type of fiction I want to write? Or as you write stories, do you explore it yourself and just let it take you and say, actually, that's more where I want to, you find very yourself much, going? Very much that, very yeah. much that, mm-hmm. because my process is organic, instinctive, and I almost don't know. I mean, I have, I have so much. Um, I gain so much from reading other writers and preferably always writers way beyond my own level. I mean, that is again, a, a, you know, the piece of advice I'd give is read beyond your level always because only by reading people who are a lot better than you currently are yourself can you actually focus on the possibilities on yeah. on what you might want to do but in in at a, at a ground level at the sort of like coal face level it's very much working in line with what one can do at any one time and i always use a sort of musical analogy which has great resonance for me you you can only start playing the hammer clavier sonata once you have mastered all the major and minor scales yeah. and done your 10,000 hours of practicing them. And I, I, I fully believe that you need to put in the hours of actually learning how to do what you want to do before mm. you can really begin to fully express yourself. Mm. And we've, we've chatted folk in the past, you've um, kind of expressed your view that writing you know, genre fiction, such as sci-fi fantasy, horror um you kind of get 
you know, I, I think I think basically pigeonholes maybe the wrong word, but that kind of idea that you're a sci-fi writer, you're a horror writer, and and I, with your career as you've as you've progressed and you've your stories have kind of um, kind of moved along the kind of um, the, the the field and the genres and kind of the blending of it. Have you have you noticed that at all yourself? Has as has, has it been hard to to to, to shift? The kind of stories that, that that you used to write into what you want to write now, it it's just happened. It's just happened as my, I mean, my interests as a reader, as a thinker, have grown and changed, mm. and my stories have done that alongside. And in a way, it I I I really do believe it's not up to me to define whether I am a science fiction writer. I, I think I think a lot of people who um, you know came to my stuff thinking, oh you know, is it science fiction? They might go they might go away bemused mm-hmm. because they're not going to meet the kind of um, space operas, space exploration fantasies, um, that kind of tech thrillers that they may be expecting, but they might meet elements of those things. So it will, it will depend on individual readers to determine what it is I write if they want to categorize it. I don't try to do that anymore because mm. i'm just i'm just i'm intent on making the best work i can make yeah. and whether okay. or not i suddenly want to draw on elements of folk horror or space opera yeah that can still happen if i suddenly feel that that's right for my story i mean you know there there are incredible writers that i i, I was writing uh, a piece of criticism just before we started recording this podcast that you know basically I what I wanted to say was it's not what you write it's how you write it and you can use any base metal mm-hmm. as it were and turn it into literary gold you, you know there yeah. are only the seven basic plots or 10 basic plots mm-hmm. or 12 basic plots or whatever metric you're using that is true and it has been true since you know cave paintings mm-hmm. But they're an, an absolute infinite variety of ways of utilising that material. And that mm. is what is important, working out how you want to relate to the material you're using. I mean, it sounds like that, that kind of gives you a lot more freedom with with the publishers in terms of you're not being told, write another sci-fi or you're being told sci-fi doesn't sell. You could have, you're, you're able to bridge that gap and just take flavours from bit, you know different genres and and fit them into a way that, that suits your specific type of story that you're trying to tell. It's quite nice. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, if, uh, I mean, I, I think the ambition for many writers is to be recognised for their particular approach, not what genre they sit in. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. certainly true for me. I don't, you know, nobody, anyone who's interested in reading me or publishing me is going to, have accepted that the, what I do, they're going to be interested in what I do because yeah. I my the, the stuff I I write doesn't conform to any of these 
idea, you know, these ideas of what genre is. But I, I, I think genre is, is really just a, it's just an armature. It's just a toolbox. Mm-hmm. You can do, you know, crime and punishment is a, is a crime novel. Um, Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus is about a deal with the literal devil. Yeah. You know, you've got horror, you've got crime, you've got, you know, I, I just, I just read, um, reread George Orwell's 1984 over the summer for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, I mean, it feels as though it was written yesterday. Yeah. It's a classic of science fiction. It's science fiction literature. It's also world literature. It's of seminal importance. Mm-hmm. No, think... and, and yet it's a, you know, it's a classic dystopia. It's got rats in a head cage. You know, you want body horror, you've got it. Yeah, <laughs> and and with with your actual uh, process, I mean, when you're when you're writing, um, with in the, in the way that you write, as you've described it, is it is it something that do you try and see where it goes and get to the end of the first draft and then revise it, or do you revise as you go? What 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 approach do you take? My drafting process is insane, and I do well. I I can't say I blame Stephen King, but I say say Stephen King is definitely my partner in crime. I, I remember when when I first started writing stories, and you sort of read about how you should make notes on index cards about all your characters or plot everything exactly before you start writing. And I know people who do this, and I know people who it works for and who literally cannot start until they know exactly what's going to happen in every chapter. And, there, you know, as we keep emphasising, there is no right and wrong way, but that certainly isn't my way. Mm. And I remember feeling, you know, oh my God, you know, I've got to, I've got to sort of work out what I'm doing, but say if I don't know what I'm doing. And then I read Stephen King's On Writing, in which he said, I've got no idea what I'm doing when I start a book. And I, and I thought, you know, hallelujah. <laughs> I've been given permission by the master of horror to do what I've instinctively felt is right. So if he can do it, it must be okay. Mm. Um, I literally start where I want to start, which is usually with a character or it might be a landscape. It just varies. And the thing I have had to come to accept about my process and about that process is that for me, it will always entail a huge amount of deletion and cancelled words. I I do not find it at all unusual or now even frightening to have to discard a novel's worth of draft in the course of writing a novel. Mm. And I ha- the, the work I'm currently engaged in, I got to 60,000 words with one draft before I just shoved it, it's gone, and started again. Um, but did, did, presumably that, that first 60,000, did that help you? get to where you needed to be presumably yeah Yeah. it helped me understand what i wanted to write and it's a this this is why i just don't i mean that again with my agent you know she she says that that she her clients run the full gamut from 
clients who literally won't start working until they sort of have her approval, like, oh, yes, that sounds like a good idea, and who will then go through every chapter. They will show her every chapter as they're going along. I do not show anybody until I've got a draft that I consider wouldn't be a disaster if you just pressed print right at that second and that was the book for the simple reason that none of it fully makes sense to anyone but me until it has reached that stage because mm -hmm. things can change i'm now the 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 draft i am working on now is about the fourth draft of this book and even now, I'm about, I guess, about 10,000 words out from finishing that draft, at which point I will then redraft the whole thing because then I've got the book. I know where I know where the book is now, but it's taken a hell of a long time. Mm -hmm. And when I say redraft, for me, that is a case of printing out the draft that I have. I can show you some pages here as proof of this method. Um, printing it out, opening a new document and starting at page one. I will then use the document that I have as a guideline and I will start typing from it and essentially rewriting it. And it will then wow. change in the process of doing that. If a sentence is okay, that sentence can stay. If But... I, I, I doubt any one sentence in it will stay exactly the same. So you actually you actually rewrite the whole novel yes. again and again and again until you're. That, yeah. That's a that sounds like a, I mean, how long does it take? Is it is it you do you, why and why do you do that as opposed to just editing what's already written? Because because what I am doing changes so substantially in the process of writing it, not just as the words on the page, but in my conception of where mm -hmm. I want to go with it, if I fall into the trap, if I were to fall into the trap of saying, hey, that bit's okay, I don't need to change that bit so I can just cut and paste it in. It's a horrendous mistake because that will always then be kind of marked by being in that particular yeah. draft. It won't have advanced to the same extent. I need the whole book to be at the same level and I the analogy I use is it's always it's like a piece of embroidery I want the evenness of stitching all mm -hmm. the way across all the mm -hmm. way across I do not want bits that date back to an earlier draft and yeah. even if they only change you know I know I know at the moment that the draft I have has two sections one's about 15,000 the other's about 15,000 there they're virtually exactly how I want them now. They've been they've been reworked so much that they are at, a, at the level I demand. However, I will still redraft those when I do the whole thing because there's so much new stuff surrounding them. I need it to just have that consistency because I will know otherwise and the book will feel mushy in parts if I don't do it like that. And it's it's a method I've used for um, all of my novels. I started using it, I'd say, about 10 years ago. And it was a method suggested to me by my partner, who's also a writer, 
and he had used it for 30 years back back to when typewriters were the thing <laughs> <laughs> and he described it to me and like you i thought that's absolutely monstrous there is no way on the planet i'm ever doing that because at the time I was very much editor on the page and I thought because I went over everything so intensely and move, you know, really, really nitty gritty editing on the page, I thought that's, you know, that's all you need to do. And this, this, this so-called method is like torture. There's no way. And then, and then one day I was sat at my desk working and I was having problems with a piece of short fiction I was writing. And I thought, right, I'm just going to try this method. It's meant to be so great. I'm going to print out one page and try the method. And literally, from that moment, I was a total convert and evangelist for it because the improvement in quality was immediately so substantial. Mm. I could not believe I hadn't used it before. And far from it being monstrous, it's actually really engaging because the first draft of any piece of work is a kind of panic to get something that makes sense onto the page mm -hmm. you don't know where it's going you don't know what the story's about you certainly don't know how it ends you don't know what you've got by the time you've finished that you you hopefully do have some sense of all of those things at which point you can start converting that raw material, because that's what it is, into an actual literary artifact. And the the doing of that through the drafting process is where the real creativity and the real thrill of writing actually begins to kick in, because you have the safety net of a story. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I, I find it just a, a tremendously... It, engaging and energizing process doing that you know i i always hated the idea of redrafting i always sort of thought i well, i need that immediacy and that edge of the seat thrill of getting it down but you've still got that you've still got that because what you're doing is so new each time and and you're re-engaging with your story and you're spotting connections back from the first you know, 50 pages of your manuscript, you, you suddenly you can see how that links into what's happening at the end. You spot mm -hmm. recurring motifs, you spot themes and the building of a theme, and you come to understand in the end what your book is actually about, which you may not understand when you first start writing it. I mean, so, I, 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 I agree, actually, because recently with the, something I was writing, I did exactly... What you did and actually re said, right, I'm going to, instead of fiddling about editing it, I'm going to, I've got it, but, and I had it, I had it there, I had it on a different screen, but it was the same principle and, and rewrote, um, from scratch. And it, it was, you know, I felt that the writing was better and also you're not as attached. I think if you're editing something, you become attached to what is there and you're trying to keep things in it. Yes. And I think when you're rewriting it, you've got that freedom, like you're saying. But at the same time, you've got the 
the structure and the, the, the sort of story, as you see. Yeah, the armature bring, of yeah, story exactly, is, yeah. is, is, is there. But yeah, I mean, an, an atta- yeah, you, what you say about attachment is so right. And it's so hard to get rid of things if you're if all you're doing is tinkering on the page. And, you know, I have learned the, the sheer joy and freedom of ch- chopping out entire 10,000 word sections. <laughs> That you don't need, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't, and you don't get that because the because the process of drafting, I find it so creative. I don't feel that I'm destroying work. It's sort of like thought and editing is as much a part of creating as setting the words down. So, sort of destroying is also creating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and your your latest novel is uh, the Good Neighbors. So it's now out in June. Um, do you want to tell us about about that novel? I again, this the novel went through so much. Um, I'm 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 very fond of it. Um, I started writing it in one place um, in the West Country. I finished by writing it on the Isle of Bute, so 500 miles, physical miles separate the beginnings of that book and the completion. And that's left its, that left its mark on the book because I actually changed the location of the action from where I was living to where I am living now. And mm. that was a huge, that was again necessitated a huge amount of destruction. The core element, the core crime at the heart of the good neighbors is the one thing that remained absolutely the same. And that was inspired by a case that was local to the area I was living in at the time I began writing in in Devon, in mid-Devon, a place called Winkley, where there was an absolutely tragic case in the 70s of a family, two brothers and a sister, who were all found dead at their farm. And... It, you know, the postman discovered these three bodies one morning and they th- these three had lived together all their lives. They'd run the farm. Suddenly they were dead. Mm-hmm. And the that was a case um, I remembered being talked about when I was um, at university in Exeter. It was a, it was it was known at the time in the area and talked about. And there was actually a play written and put on at the Northcote Theatre while I was in Exeter about this case. So it was like always in my mind. And um, then when I returned to live near there, um, I read an account of the case, a true crime account of the case, which reignited my interest in it. And I just, that was the seed from which a very, very different story eventually grew. Mm -hmm. But this idea of family secrets a hidden life of a family leading ultimately to tragedy and murder just captivated me and chilled me and I wanted to do I knew I wanted to do something with that but the story that took the story that took shape around it changed radically during the creation of that book and took on what I describe as my trademark elements of the weird mm-hmm. and certainly both landscapes that inspired it were very much in sympathy with these elements of the weird. And so 
I think in the end, what I wanted to create was a novel that satisfied as a straight crime novel with no belief or reference to the supernatural. Anyone who likes crime literature, and I count myself very much among that company, could read The Good Neighbours and find within it a rational explanation for everything that takes place and that would satisfy as a, as a procedural novel. But if you are of the more um, esoteric turn of mind and you enjoy the weird, mm. there is weird in there for you. And that is conveyed both through story and through register of language. The parts that most pertain to the weird are written in the most free-flowing poetic almost sort of hyper real sections of language and that's relating to our character johnny who may or may not be a murderer but he's certainly involved in some very very strange thought processes mm. and the violence that surrounds johnny that tragically seems to follow him from his childhood through into adulthood and and his end may or may not have been helped along its way by strange outside influences. It sounds fantastic, I have to say. And 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 what's been the impact this is a question we've always been asking now, but what's been the impact of the COVID lockdown pandemic on your writing process and on the publication of of, of the book? I mean obviously we've heard it's been pushed back and you know I, and has that been a, a massive problem or has it been a solution you have to say, well, we just have to take it and just see, see what happens with it? It's, I mean, I I always knew um, that I needed space between the completion of that book and the publication because I wanted to work fully on my next book without having to worry about publicity and thinking about an interviews for the book that was coming out I ne mm. I needed a large canvas of space yeah. mm -hmm. to work it's very important for me and so I wasn't at all concerned about the book coming out in March and at the time the March date was decided upon it seemed ideal um, from from my point of view and then Covid happened and it seemed even more ideal because obviously nothing was going to happen in 2020 regarding book events. Mm -hmm. And then it was the decision was taken very recently to move the date again to June, because at the moment of speaking, there seems a very, very real possibility that their mm -hmm. bookshops will not be open in March. And so I was very yeah. happy um, for my publishers to take that decision to move the book to June, which is kind of in keeping with the book anyway. There's a, a sort of summer, a sort of midsummer night's dream fairy vibe mm -hmm. to it anyway. I'm very happy with that. It also, it works out fine because I'm in the latter stages, as we've just been talking, of drafting the next book. So I am hoping that by the time The Good Neighbours comes out, I will have finished the 
final draft of my work in progress and I'll be able to thoroughly enjoy yeah. the good neighbours coming out and talking about the good neighbours and thinking about it again and, and really sort of being in touch with that book. Yeah. And the as far as lockdown goes, it's been weird um we were uh, we're on a scottish island so we were literally locked down to that island from march 2020 until about june we were you know it was we, we weren't allowed to leave unless it was for essential purposes yeah. um which had a kind of cocooning effect it's sort of obviously very disturbing in one way because as spring came on that was the time when traditionally the island would be coming to life, we'd be welcoming visitors, there would be boats in the harbour, you would see everything opening up and nothing was opening up. It was this weird stillness of winter mm -hmm. carried on into the spring and early summer, um, which felt very strange. As regards working on new work, I've been very lucky in that it hasn't, prevented me from working as I know many writers have felt completely stymied and unable to work yeah. in the anxiety amidst the anxiety of COVID. Yeah. I am, you know, I'm a very, I'm very driven. I mean, just call it driven, call it workaholic, whatever you however you want to describe that. I wasn't stopped from writing, but it certainly had a very disruptive impact on what I was writing and there's a yeah. great deal of the reason why I ended up scrapping 60,000 words of the draft and becoming obsessed during the writing with other modes of storytelling with pandemic literature I was reading I mean I don't mean zombie novels I mean yeah. <laughs> reading the plague reading journal of the plague year um, all the sort of older essays, non-fiction, novels about pandemics and plagues and feeling somehow I've got to express that. What is the appropriate response? What, you know, the anxiety of being able to rise to the moment is considerable mm -hmm. and still and remains so. Is it appropriate even to respond? Should we be waiting for these matters these months these images to properly be assimilated into our literary consciousness before we even think about trying to express what we have seen mm -hmm. yeah. because we are not properly capable of understanding yet what we have seen it is going to take years so all these elements and anxieties certainly impacted my working and reading life I think ultimately in an energizing way if anything I've come out of or continue to work in the midst of these times utterly convinced of the necessity of books mm -hmm. of reading of expression of investigation of interrogation we have never needed it more uh, and and art has become a, an, an absolute we talk about essentials what are essentials art is an essential for navigating and interrogating 
the times in which we live and my commitment to that has redoubled through the past year and I hope will continue to do so but it's certainly a disruptive taskmaster. It's interesting isn't it in terms of what you were saying there about the sort of stories that will come out of, of, of this because I suppose you know any stories that are written about it now will be very very different from stories that are written in 15 20 years looking back at this period and i suppose you can see that in the past as well about about um, these sorts of events as well and both both are equally valid yeah absolutely we need need testimony we also need reflection and interrogation and you know especially with the political context Mm -hmm. which is so oh well, yes. <laughs> let's try to restrict ourselves. To yes, enough said. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so um, you you you've got the Good Neighbours is coming out in June, and uh, you've got your next book. You, hopefully, by then we'll be finished um, uh, in terms of, of drafting and stuff like that. I mean, how how far ahead do you have you got already an idea of what you'll be working on next, or does it take a bit of time before you? I do actually I do actually have notes for what I want to work on next and again that was kind of an accident because I had a a piece of short fiction that I had promised to somebody by Christmas and you know I oh my god that was a real sort of panic but in thinking about it I suddenly came up with suddenly realized I had a whole novel on my hands I do not write short fiction easy I mean people there's 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 always this thing in interviews, people always talk about my short fiction and how much of it I've written. And I think I, I am no good as a short fiction writer. Like everything I write is an experiment on the way to a novel. Uh-huh. And this can be very, very vexatious because I can't write short very easily at all. And somehow I had this, this plan for a novel and I still had to write a short story and I did it and I love it. I love it. It's so much of this year in very weird ways, but it, I do still have a novel that I'm very eager to write and that will, I think, examine more directly what we've been living through. And I am, I am very eager to do that. And so I'm, I'm hoping that I will maybe start to write that towards the end of this year. <laughs> What was the last book that you read? The last book that I read was the most extraordinary, I'm going to call it a crime novel, but it's absolutely as genre-busting as anything you would find. It's called The Treatment, and it's by Michael Nath, and that was published last year, 2020. And it is loosely, very loosely inspired by the aftermath of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry right and it's set in southeast London and as a as a former resident of that parish I can testify to the sheer brilliance of Nath's portrayal of the area and the evocation of it um it's kind of a the revenge thriller to end all revenge thrillers it's brilliant it's written in dense elusive high register language that sort of references 
Elizabethan writers like Christopher Marlowe, who is referenced in the novel. Uh-huh. It's packed with philosophy. It's packed with questions surrounding the morality of revenge. It's packed with street dialogue. It's, it's um, about racism. It's about prejudice. It's an astounding, mesmerizing, huge in every sense. It's a 500-page book. It takes commitment from the reader. But everything you put into that book, you get back. It's, it's wonderful. And um, as, a, as a sort of, as, as, a, as a kind of break from that, I've just um, now about halfway through Susanna Clarke's new novel, Piranesi, mm-hmm. her follow-up. Yeah. Um, to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell has been 10 years plus in the making um, about as different from the treatment as you could get but equally inspiring just mesmerising beautiful book which I cannot believe how she is half the length of the treatment I cannot believe how she gets so much into Mm -hmm. 200 pages it's wonderful so my Fantastic. reading year is off to a brilliant start. Brilliant. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. And uh, what about the last film you watched? The last film I watched, and um, it's a it's a movie that I don't. It, it's it's on Netflix, so anyone can see it at the moment. I don't know whether it had. I mean, it it came out last year, so whether it had a cinema release in the circumstances, I don't know. It's an Argentinian movie. Um, it's called The Distinguished Citizen and the director, um, Gaston Duprat. Mm-hmm. And it's about a writer who wins the Nobel Prize and is invited and he's spent three decades living in Barcelona in Europe and very much escaping from his beginnings in this very, very provincial town. Um, and he's invited back to, as a distinguished, to receive this distinguished citizen medal. And it's, it's a wonderful film. It's an examination of, um, provincial life, the push, the pull of small town life, the writing process, the way in which leaving your hometown and becoming something else separates you from your past. And yet you keep being tugged back into it. It's yeah. also a brilliant metafiction. It's fantastic. I, I nice. really, anyone who has Netflix, please watch The Distinguished Citizen. Yeah, a lot of the foreign uh, stuff on Netflix is very good, actually. They've it's got a so good, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. yeah. Um, 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 a TV show, what, are you watching a TV series or have you watched one recently? Just coming to the end of the marvellous Queen's Gambit. Oh, yeah. That's oh, yeah, it's good. And yeah, I, yeah. Nobody could be happy because I adore I adore the original Walter Tevis novel. I read mm-hmm. it 10 years ago because I am obsessed with chess and any books connected with it. Um, I, I don't know why I can't play the game. I hurriedly add, but <laughs> I just love the philosophy, the thought process, the mathematics. Sort of, mm-hmm. it, I probably sort of started falling in love with it when I was originally studying Nabokov and his great novel, The Lusian Defense. Um, you know, it's, it's just, part of my literary DNA and I seek out anything to do with it and um, the the, um, the series on ne- again on um, Netflix I just wish Tevis were alive today yeah. to see how beautiful and how faithful it is to what his vision and it, it's just 
it's anyone who thinks you know tv is a lesser art form go and watch it yeah absolutely it's an amazing job of i mean as you say you don't even need to understand how chess works to 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 find the chess game seems you know stressful and tense and it's it does an amazing job of of making you think, I, I don't know, I've done no idea what's going on, but I am really invested in the outcome of this game. You feel it. I, I was saying to yeah. my partner just last time, I said the, the balance they have struck between making that, because the, the novel is fully, fo- the novel is mesmerising, fully focused on the games, and, it, and it's sort of like you get pages and pages and pages of basically chess moves, mm-hmm. somehow manages to be incredible even yeah. if you don't have that technical exactly. mastery. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and the way the series has replicated that at just the right level of accessibility and mm-hmm. complexity is, is wonderful. It's, it's superb. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, the very last thing we have is a super quick fire, either or, and there's no right answers apart from one. So uh, <laughs> we'll start off with uh, Jeff Vandermeer or Stephen King. Jeff Vandermeer. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> Straight in there, no hesitation. Uh, TV or cinema? Both really important. Both really important to me. Um, I'm not. Oh my god! I can't. I can't. I can't. <laughs> Fair, <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Don't at me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Oh my god! Um, I'm going to say. I'm going to say takeaway. I say the one we, we adore where we live. We adore living on the island of Butte. But the one thing we really, really miss is having a really good Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> we need it. We need it so bad. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the last question, the one that Tarek always uh, wants to know the answer to, real book or ebook. Now that's going to be divided because... Nothing will, nothing will ever replace the physical book. The book as a physical, you know, you, you always remember where you were when you were reading a certain book mm. and the cover, although you, irreplaceable. However, in my practical day to day life, I read on Kindle a hell of a lot. If you're traveling, if you're in a hotel room where they do not understand the meaning of the word bedside lamp. <laughs> <laughs> I need physically. I need an ebook. I need the back. I need it, and I yeah. and it revolutionised my reading of life, my ease of being able to take things everywhere. So, I will. It's a godsend. The ebook is an absolute godsend. But I will often find myself rebuying in physical form those books I want yeah. and need, and mm-hmm. I would never ever. They're irreplaceable. So Absolutely. I'm cheating again. Both. No, uh, no, I I would say that's an unequivocal win for ebooks. I think that's, <laughs> you know, music to my ears. I'm very happy to have you join the uh, ever growing squad of ebooks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thanks very much to Nina for coming on the podcast. I thought that was a really interesting episode. And yeah, absolutely. You know, as as I mentioned at the start, it's quite a unique uh, redrafting process that she's got there. I mean, yeah. I, as as I said in our discussion, you know, it's something that I've tried, and I do find that it, it does give you a kind of freedom that if if you're just trying to edit, as in change the stuff that's already there, you can sometimes get too attached to it. So I think that's a very good point, and I I definitely felt that myself, where you're almost locked into the words mm. that are on the page, and it's difficult to 
to, to know how to change it to if you, if, you, if you know it's not working but you don't know how to change it sometimes just writing from scratch is, is the best thing. and i suppose if you've done enough writing in of the book that you've kind of got the voice right maybe it's kind of flows a bit easier and stuff so it's uh yeah i think i think that we probably all had chapters where we think this just isn't working and I just need to throw it and j- just what she was you know that she can write you know she can throw away almost a novel's worth of draft <laughs> yeah. almost you know it, it's a scary thought in some way mm. but at the same time you really will get the best version of your story at that point because you you know you've really explored it all you've explored everything and you've suddenly realized right these are the important things that i need to take out of this story and put it back totally. on the page yeah. but yeah it's not definitely not a process that everyone would use um no or, it's 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 a, it's quite a daunting one yeah it? just the thought of starting again especially when you when you've spent months writing seventy thousand words whatever yeah. the thought of doing it again from scratch seems like a like a horrible task but i think there are times and there are people where it really does work yeah so um yeah as i say thanks very much to nina uh, for coming on to the podcast and uh as Tarek said at the start uh, the good neighbors is out on the 10th of june so at the uh, time of recording <laughs> yes at the time of recording and not at the time of recording um so uh, go and grab a copy of that and actually you know if you are listening to this at the time of recording in all seriousness if it does sound like a book you're interested in get a pre-order in because it's something that we don't talk a lot about on the podcast, but I think it, you know, authors always say it makes a massive difference to have pre-orders yeah. for books as opposed to people buying it after the fact because it's sort of that it's it's almost like it's the splash that a book makes that determines whether or not it's a successful book or, or not. Absolutely, and and also leave a review. Yes, because as it, it's a one of the most helpful things I think anyone can do for any any product be it book or podcast. Well, I, I see what you've done there, Tyler. That's very, <laughs> very nice segue into my usual begging for <laughs> a, a review and a rating on your favourite podcast app if you enjoyed this uh, episode. Um, because uh, as Tarek says, it does help us continue to get great guests on the podcast. And of course, if anyone wants to get in touch, they can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a Twitter through the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear. And that's the symbol underscore, not the word underscore. That might be the reason we've not heard anything <laughs> for so long. I think people may have Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what it is. So um, just to let you know as well that this is um, the last episode in our seventh season. Um, so we will be taking a short break but it will just be a matter of of weeks we've already actually recorded some episodes for the next season so it'll be a break of uh, maybe three or four weeks and we'll be back with season eight with more great guests and sorry Tarek's holding his finger up because there's some very exciting news which Marco's completely forgotten me have to mention today. Oh, in fact, yes, absolutely. So if you're missing us in those three or four weeks, you needn't, <laughs> because uh, we Tarek and I uh, are also interviewing, or have interviewed, but it will go out on uh, Sunday the 6th of June, uh, Gareth L. Powell for the Chimera uh, Book Festival which uh, normally takes place in person in Edinburgh, but it's, it's online this year, and which means that anyone around the world can easily attend any of the talks. And they've got a great um, schedule of talks uh, with lots of great authors. Um, but yeah, we have recorded one with Gareth L. Powell, and it was a lot of fun to do. So um, please do tune in for that as well. It will be on the Chimera 
website. That's C-Y-M-E-R-A-M. But I will put a link in the podcast description so you can find that easily. Yeah, I have to say the, um, the kind of, you know, if you're looking at upsides of pandemics, I suppose the availability of book festivals has mm-hmm. been amazing. You know, it was the same with the Edinburgh Book Festival last year, etc. The, the the ability to see as many authors as you want talking is is great, and so that's a that's a that's a great thing. And I would urge anyone to check out or chat with Gareth, and of course all the other great talks that are on at Chimera this year. Yeah, definitely. So um, have a great time, and uh, we'll see you in about a month's time. See you later. Thank you.